call to worship is from Psalm 92. Psalm 92, and I will be continuing in the God's Garden series. We'll be working our way through Scripture, following the Garden of God theme. So Psalm 92 is our call to worship this morning. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. To the music of the ten-stringed lyre, and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord! How profound your thoughts! The senseless man does not know, fools do not understand, that though the wicked spring up like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. For surely your enemies, O Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured upon me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in Him. Amen. Let's sing hymn number 50. Two passages for our scripture reading this morning. The first is Isaiah chapter 61, and then we'll be going to Luke chapter 4. Today's sermon is on the Messiah and the garden, and I think you'll see how that works out with Isaiah 61, and then we'll go to Luke 4. God speaks to us. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, 
For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, He went to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue as was His custom, and He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. Unrolling it, He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on Me, because He has anointed Me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Sin, can you come lead us in prayer? What makes a garden so refreshing? Gardening is one of those things that human beings have been doing for as long as there has been people on planet Earth. Gardens not only provide food to sustain life, which we especially enjoy this time of year as the harvest is coming in and the freezers are getting full, but gardens are also therapeutic. And if you've ever been in, in the middle of a garden with the freshly turned earth and the smell of the, of the soil, or been around the aroma of fruit trees breaking out in bloom, or if you've seen the vision of how all the plants respond to the gentle showers of the springtime, or even taste the fresh, hearty, whole food that comes from a garden, you'll understand what I mean by this. Really, a garden gives us an experience of heaven on earth. And it's no wonder then that the gospel of Jesus Christ is first presented to us in a garden setting, God's garden. God's garden is a place of life and health and peace. And as we've gone through this series, we've seen how this, this concept of the garden actually goes all the way through the Bible, for wherever the God is living in fellowship and friendship with His people, you will find gardens all through the Bible. It's not like we have the idea that the garden only exists in the beginning of Genesis and then it doesn't exist anymore. Actually, we've seen very carefully, if we look at very closely, that the images of garden just keep going wherever you find God's people as you work your way through the Bible. The first garden of the Lord was in the land of Eden, but later in Genesis we found out the Jordan Valley was like the garden of the Lord as was Egypt. And it's kind of ironic because Abraham spent time both in Egypt and in the Jordan Valley. And it said in Genesis 13 that these two places were like the Garden of the Lord. And then you have the children of Abraham who many years later find themselves in the land of Goshen, which is the finest of all the land of Egypt, another garden. And so you have another garden theme there with with the children of Israel in the land of Goshen. Yet God took them from the bondage of that garden to a land flowing with milk and honey, which we saw is an image of productivity and health that's actually rooted in the original garden with you know, the idea that milk is a more refined or a more sustaining form of milk and honey is actually something that trees, that the bees actually have hives in trees. So you have milk and honey corresponding to the land of flowing water and fruit trees in the Garden of Eden. The law was given to Israel was actually based on the pattern of Eden. And we saw how all these different things work as as we've looked at the law and the garden. The high priest wore the ephod with two beautiful onyx stones engraved with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There's only one other place in the book of Genesis that onyx stones are mentioned, and that's the Garden of Eden. 
and the high priest was to wear this jewelry as a remembrance of the Garden of Eden. And you have the names of the twelve tribes inscribed on those gems. We saw also that the lampstand in the tabernacle in the temple was actually a tree. It actually had buds and blossoms to represent a tree and it was a light-bearing thing. And it's a great picture that actually is rooted in the garden because it's actually a symbol of the tree of life. And it's a great image because the, the lampstand in the tabernacle in the temple gives light to all those who worship in God's house. Just like the tree of life gives light and life. And then we saw also how the priests wore special clothing in order for that they not sweat. They were to wear linen garments. Well, why is that? Why were they to wear linen garments so they would not sweat in God's house? Well, it's because of the garden. When Adam and Eve broke covenant with God, one of the curses upon them, on Adam, was that he was going to do all of his work in the sweat of his brow. And so now these priests are being actually giving an image of being back in the garden because now they are wearing these priestly garments in which they do not sweat. The law is Edenic. And then we saw how the prophets picked up on the garden theme and applied it to the entire nation of Israel. Israel, like Eden, was God's garden, the whole land. The prophets tell us that God is the one who built the wall, who planted the vineyard, and God was the one who tended it, and God was the one who enjoyed the fruits of Israel. All garden imagery, right there with the the history of Israel. But like Adam in the garden, Israel in the land broke covenant with God, and God drove them out of his presence. And the prophets understood this thing, and we looked at this in the last in the last segment, the prophets understood this as a kind of death, that Israel was now in death waiting for their resurrection, waiting for life to come to them. And that's where the prophets start talking about the restoration of Israel and the coming of Messiah who is going to restore Israel. And so, not surprisingly, all of this restoration to come that we see in the prophets is couched in these Garden of Eden images, the, the, the healing of water going out from the temple. You have trees of the garden being grown back up again. Uh, You even have the idea of the Messiah who was going to be a tree who was going to be cut down and the holy seed would be the stump in the land in Isaiah 6. Trees. Where do trees come from? Well, they go back to the Garden of Eden. God's the gardener. That's how God is first presented to us as a gardener who plants a beautiful garden for Adam. So this restoration would be life from the dead, a resurrection. And so today we come naturally to the Messiah and the garden. And what I hope to impress upon you is that the coming of Jesus Christ in the world is part of this wider garden story through all Scripture. And a lot of Christians in our day tend to think of Jesus in the New Testament as a brand new story in the Bible. We're going to start the whole story over again. And so when you become a Christian, you're supposed to pick up Matthew chapter 1 and start reading in Matthew chapter 1. That's how a lot of Christians look at the New Testament and they separate it from all of the rest of the story that comes before it. And, I, and I've, I've said this a lot before, but that is a recipe to fail in understanding what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. Because that cuts it off from the entire story that's come before. And Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. So if you don't know the history of Israel, how are you going to understand what the Messiah of Israel is going to do? How are you going to understand his work of redemption? What Jesus does in his ministry and work makes little sense unless you understand the wider story the Bible tells. And that's why I hate that little page in the middle of the Bible, that thing that says with big, bold letters, the New Testament. I hate that. And you guys know I take my frustration out of my Bible. It's not there anymore. And it's bad enough when you have to do that, but then you get the whole congregation involved and they're ripping out these pages of the Bible. 
I hate that page because it breaks the story. The story in Malachi ends with a promise of the one to come to prepare the way for the Lord. The story of the Gospels pick up with the story of John the Baptist. It's one story. And so these are things that um, tend to be our handicaps with our particular way of looking at the Bible as modern Christians in America. And I think that we sometimes really miss what the story is all about because of these different methods. So let's continue in our series with God's Guard by looking at the Messiah in the garden and see how Jesus fits into the wider story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through various texts in the Gospels mainly and we'll see how what he is doing is based off of the entire story going all the way back to Adam and Eve. So let's start with Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So obviously they knew something about this idea of a coming King of the Jews. Verse 3, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of law, he asked them where the Christ, or Messiah, was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And a lot of times we don't realize the, the, the prophetic background from that because in the prophets, God is the shepherd of Israel. And so here we have this Messiah who's going to come and be the shepherd of my people Israel. But doesn't it look like this is an ongoing story? Like we're jumping in at the middle of something here because we're talking about a promise of the king of the Jews. We're talking about somebody who's going to come and be the shepherd of the people Israel. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. All this is Old Testament stuff. And skipping down in verse 13, we find out what, what actually happens. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, as Joseph, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so we have these interesting patterns developing in these events in the early parts of Jesus' Jesus's life. We have Jesus here avoiding a slaughter of babies, a slaughter of male children. That should ring a bell because that's the story of Moses. If you remember back with Moses in Exodus, Pharaoh tried to kill all the male children in Israel. And now you have a repeat of that sort of story with Herod. But also you have Joseph and Mary and Jesus escaping to Egypt. And we saw something like that in the book of Genesis, right? Because back in Genesis, Joseph escaped his brothers by being sold into slavery and ended up in Egypt. And in the end, all of Joseph's family, all of Jacob's family, basically escaped the severe and great famine by moving to Egypt. So we have this precedent in the story here for what's going on in the life of Jesus Christ. And then, when the time was right, the nation of Israel left Egypt and followed God to the Promised Land. If you remember, that's the story at the end of Genesis and the early part of Exodus. Well, Matthew takes what Hosea wrote about the nation of Israel, out of Egypt I called my son, and applies it to Jesus. And if you go back and you read Hosea chapter 11, Hosea is talking about Israel's history. The son that, that God called 
out of Egypt is the nation Israel. But here Matthew says this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why would, why would Hosea talk about the history of Israel and then Matthew all of a sudden take Hosea and say, no, 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 this is fulfilled with Jesus Christ because Jesus went to Egypt and then he came back. Well, he does that because Matthew saw the entire history of Israel in the person of Jesus Christ. What is Matthew saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ is Israel. He is the Son. And in this man is the true nation of God's people. And next we go to Matthew chapter 3. So that's the context here of what the Apostle Matthew is doing. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now we have a desert scene. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Does this look familiar to you, a desert scene? It is in the desert in which Jesus is baptized into his ministry. Jesus goes out of Egypt into the desert, baptized into his ministry, and after he's baptized, he goes into the land of Israel and begins teaching all across the promised land. You see that pattern? We talked about that pattern last time. We talked about Adam who was formed in the wilderness. And we have then, after Adam was formed in the wilderness, God took the man and planted him in the garden that he had made in Eden. We see the same pattern with Israel because Israel as a nation was formed at Sinai in the wilderness with the giving of the law. They were made a nation at that point. And then God takes them just like he took Adam and he plants them into the promised land, his garden. And so now you have Jesus being baptized into ministry in the desert, in the wilderness, and he goes into the promised land to fulfill his ministry. So these patterns and themes keep coming back up all the way back from the Genesis, from the Genesis record that we have in the very first book of the Bible. So we know now not, Jesus is not only the true nation, but you can actually go further back because Matthew says that, that Jesus is, is, is the nation. He is the son I've called out of Egypt. We can actually go further back because Jesus is really a new Adam because we see that pattern. And then you have the nation Israel walking around in Judea and, and Jesus has 12 followers behind him. Very symbolic. The 12 tribes of Israel are following the new Moses, so to speak. So you have this new exodus going on. And all of these, these themes and stuff are, are actually being recapitulated or reenacted in the life of Jesus. Now, another very important thing about the Messiah of Israel we must understand is that his ministry was focused on Israel first. Turn to Mark chapter 7. The next gospel, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. A very neglected passage, but I think a very important passage to understand. Mark 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered the house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as as they heard about him, as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. 
The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Who are the children and who are the dogs? Don't, don't take this literally. This is the Jews and the Gentiles, right? That's the representation there. We see generally the Gentiles are represented as animals in the Old Testament prophets. We see that symbolism working its way out. The children are sons of Abraham and the dogs are the Gentiles. And Jesus alludes to a time when the bread will go to the dogs, but only after the children eat all they want. Okay? So there's an order here. So the gospel goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And we see that order precisely worked out in the book of Acts, where the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. But everyone in Israel knew that the Messiah would not only save Israel, but also save the Gentiles. Let's go on to the next gospel in Luke 2. And we'll see that very clearly in Luke chapter 2. And this is the context of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Where did Simeon get that idea that the Messiah was going to be a light and a revelation to the Gentiles, to all people? We tend to think of this idea that the Apostle Paul thought of this idea of the gospel going to the Gentiles as if all of a sudden something brand new is going on in the New Testament. But again, no, no, no. It's all part of the story. The Old Testament prophets foresaw the time when the Messiah would go and bring light and help and peace to the Gentiles. This is part of the law and the prophets. Places, where did Simeon get this idea that a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, that this baby that he was holding was going to be a light to the Gentiles? He got it from the Old Testament, which he knew very well. He got it from places like Isaiah chapter 61, which we read this morning. The Messiah of Israel, like Joseph, was to save not only his own brothers, but the whole world. And that is why the Judaizers and the Pharisees were condemned later in the New Testament. They rejected the idea that God would reestablish his relationship with Gentiles as Gentiles. Remember, circumcision came through Abraham. So God had a relationship with the Gentiles before circumcision was there, right? And yet, here you have the prophets promising that God would reestablish his relationship with the Gentiles as Gentiles through the work of the Messiah. And then you have the story of the New Testament where the Pharisees and the Judaizers reject that. Because they say, no, you have to become a Jew to be a Christian. You have to be circumcised to be saved. And therefore, when they did that, they rejected all of God's word. Like Adam in the garden, they rejected God's word and did not live by faith in what he had promised. And so just like Adam, the Pharisees and Judaizers were cut off from their people. We see that happening later in the first century with the destruction of Jerusalem and Judea. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to John chapter 2. The next gospel, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And when I read this, 
try to remember those themes that we saw in the history of the garden and the history of Israel. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now last week, Bo read from Jeremiah chapter 7. And I believe we have to go back to Jeremiah chapter 7 to really understand what Jesus is doing here. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. I'll just read the first few verses. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And this is just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And notice that Jeremiah does not drive them from the temple. He gives a warning that God would drive them from the temple. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, that would be the northern kingdom, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust, and the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. Well, what happened to Israel in the land in Judah? The Babylonians came, destroyed the land, destroyed the temple, and carried the people from the promised land, from the presence of God, into Babylon, where they lived there for 70 years. Well, what happened to Israel in the land was an echo of what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden and left the presence of God. When Israel broke covenant with God, Israel was kicked out of the land, same basic thing, and thrust out of God's presence because they had turned God's house into a den of robbers. Now along comes Jesus in John 4. And what does Jesus say? How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And what does Jesus do? Verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. Does that look familiar to you? 
Jesus driving them out of the temple? Again, just like God himself, and actually the language is identical to Genesis 3.24 in the Septuagint. Just like God drove the man and the woman out of the garden, so Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple and cleanses his temple. Jeremiah didn't drive them out of the temple. He pronounced God's message. Jeremiah did not have the authority to drive them out of the temple. But notice what the question, notice the question that people asked when they saw Jesus cleanse the temple. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? They knew, they knew that what Jesus did required God's authority. Because only God drives the man and the woman out of the garden. Only God drives the people out of the temple. That's what he did with Israel. He came and he drove the nation Israel out of the land. So the people knew this and they understood that there was an issue of authority. What sign will you show us that you have the authority to do this? So what sign does Jesus give them? Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus gave them the sign of the resurrection which only God can do. Only God can bring the dead to life. And that would be proof that Jesus had authority to cleanse God's temple. And notice very clearly in the text that Jesus says, I will raise this temple in three days. That's a clear statement of divinity. Jesus is God. Because we see in another text how God raised Jesus from the dead. Here Jesus claims he will raise himself from the dead in three days. That takes us to John chapter 4. When a Samaritan woman, verse 7, came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. When you see living water there, you should think garden. Because that's what made the garden alive. That's what Genesis says. The rivers flowed out and made everything grow. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She took him literally. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Don't take that literally. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's spiritual. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. See what she's doing? She's missing it. A literal interpretation. Missed it. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And so she decides to ask him some questions. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. She got it. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So what is the work of the Messiah? In one word, it is restoration. And this is where I believe modern Christians really miss the story of the New Testament. In one word, the work of the Messiah is restoration. The Messiah restores the kingdom of God, which has existed since the Garden of Eden, by removing the sin which corrupted Adam and Eve and all Israel. We can see that very clearly when Jesus explains his own parables. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus' own explanation of the parables that shows us. Matthew chapter 13. His work is one of restoration. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 37. Notice the garden imagery that he uses in his parables. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And remember, we saw how the seed of the serpent goes back to Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the serpent is going to make war against the seed of the woman. Well, this goes back all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. Now a lot of people take this explanation of the parable and they say, well, Jesus is actually talking about the end of the world. And I actually agree with that. I've kind of changed how I present this. But I believe that. I believe that is the end of the world. The end of the age is the end of the world. But the problem is it's not the end of our world or the physical universe because the kingdom still goes. Actually, this, what Jesus is talking is about the end of their world, the end of the old covenant world of shadows and types, which happened in AD 70 when God sent his angels when Israel, Judah, and the temple were destroyed by the Romans because he told all the Christians that was, that was coming. In fact, remember he told the, the woman at the well, the time is coming and now is where neither Jerusalem nor in your place will they worship God. Well, he knew, that, he knew the temple was going to be destroyed. And that's what he warned about. He warned all the Christians to leave Judea when they saw, saw all those signs. And what happened was, as Judah and Jerusalem and the Jews continually rejected the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they became more and more corrupt. And the Christians were forced out of Judea. And this parable came to pass where through the Roman armies God himself came in and purged his kingdom refined them like fire weeded out all of the evil so that the kingdom would be restored the work of the Messiah was to restore the kingdom perhaps it is more fundamental to say than the mere purification you can go back to Malachi chapter 3 and the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 is that God is going to refine Israel He's going to be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap and clean Israel. But it may be even more fundamental to say that Jesus Christ is Israel. That's how Matthew did it. All those who live by faith in God live in him. And again, the theme is a garden. One more text. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Where we see this this purging and purification. We see the idea of God the gardener. We see the image of a garden all wrapped up together in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. 
speaking of Israel, Paul says, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And there's something really neat about the way God ordained salvation to go to the Gentiles through the Jews. Because although those who believed the Old Testament knew that this had to happen, not one Jew understood how God would do it. That's why Jesus was such a surprise. Resurrection? The Messiah killed? They all knew it had to happen. Doesn't, I, doesn't Isaiah talk about the suffering servant put to death? But how is it going to happen? They all knew it had to happen, but they didn't know how it would happen. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. See, Paul didn't make up this idea of going to the Gentiles. He was entrusted a ministry to the Gentiles to fulfill the prophets. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Resurrection. If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Notice that the Gentiles and the Jews are coming together. That's the whole point behind this olive tree. They're being brought into one, formed into one nation. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, think garden, Israel, nation, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? This is the garden theme in the Gospel. The story of God's people is the story of a garden. With God the gardener, you live in a garden. Everything in your life is intended to grow and to bear fruit by the grace of God. It is He who nourishes you. He is the vine and you are the branches. He is the olive root. You are the olive branches. You do not live in a desert waste. And this is a great error that I see the fruit of over and over again. Christians believe that they live in a desert waste today and their lives, as a result of their lack of faith, manifest it. You do not live in a desert waste. You live in a garden. And everything that you, that you do is designed to be fruitful through the grace of God. That should give us great comfort and a warning at the same time. Comfort and a warning. I, I actually was talking with some friends about this and they, they saw this as a contradiction. If we are secure in Christ, which I believe we are, how can we also say that we have a warning in the gospel? Paul presents both at the same time. A great comfort that you are grafted into the olive tree, that the, that the root nourishes you, and a great warning 
both at the same time. Those are not contradictory. Comfort in that the grace of God has made us alive through Christ. We have been saved by grace through faith, just like Adam was created by grace to live by faith in God's word. You live in God's garden, but beware, God tends his garden. This is the message of the entire scripture. God is the gardener. He tends his garden. He prunes. He cuts. He disciplines. He protects his faithful. And so we have verse 22. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. May we live faithful, productive lives in the garden of God that has been restored through the Messiah of Israel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives. We thank you for making us into your nation, your people, your kingdom. We thank you for the reign that you have been seen fit to manifest in this world, generation after generation, the work that you've been doing since the world began. We thank you and praise you for what you've done in us. We pray for strength and wisdom to be strong. We pray for wisdom to, to understand the right and to choose the right over the wrong. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.